This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. It took the best part of a fortnight and results were still trickling in. This week, we got news on Thursday that Sarah Palin lost in Alaska. But now it's definitive. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. Nevertheless, come January next year, the Republicans will officially be in control of the House of Representatives. What will they do? Who will be in charge? Will they hold together or fall apart? All key questions for the week's and months ahead. I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. So I would say right now, a lot of members, and I would say the same on the Senate side, just they're trying to figure out what happened. What did Democrats do well to hold on? Mariana Sotomayor is a congressional reporter covering the House of Representatives for The Washington Post. She knows firsthand what the outgoing speaker, Nancy Pelosi, and the incoming speaker, probably Kevin McCarthy, are like. Kevin McCarthy and Nancy Pelosi are very different. Kevin McCarthy is young. He's pretty jovial, has a pep in his step. So whenever he doesn't have one, you know he's very serious, thinking about something that's weighing on him. And Nancy Pelosi, of course, has said, I am no longer going to serve as Speaker of the House or as a Democrat in leadership. She is very methodical. You know, I, I think she comes off as very serious and, and knowing exactly what she's saying with intention. Um, but behind the scenes, she can also be kind of funny. She tries to crack some jokes here and there. And there is definitely a deference that is given to her whenever she's walking around in the hallways of Capitol Hill. So before we get on to what Republicans are going to do with this extremely narrow control they've won, let's just for a second think about how they got here. You're talking to these people all the time. What is their analysis of how and they performed the way they did, why they performed they did the way they did. Uh, you know, they got some good results in places like California and New York, but less good results elsewhere. What do Republicans say went wrong? In reflection, a lot of Republicans now, you know, the more moderates saying publicly, those who have been behind Trump are saying this more privately. They do blame the former president and his point of view for them losing the election. And and what does that mean? You know, there have been a number of 
Republicans who staunchly embraced Trump and they made that part of of their persona on the campaign trail on the House side. And a lot, if not all of those people who were endorsed by Trump actually lost. A lot of voters saw through Republicans trying to, you know, skirt those questions, not answer it directly. And Democrats saying they did well, not just because of that, but also a lot of these vulnerable Democrats representing those swing districts, they're already known entities. There is an incumbency factor here that helped them. People in the community know who they are. So, you know, Republicans just saying, you know, Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan, she's just like Biden. She's just like Pelosi. A lot of voters I talked to in her district were like, no, but I kind of know her. I know she is more pragmatic. She's actually gone up against Pelosi, and I like that about her. So Republicans now kind of looking at what should their message be next cycle, and maybe they should be proposing more policies, which is something that lacked both in Senate candidates and House Republican candidates. And in a way, they could get away with not having policy before because they were the party of opposition. Now the climate is going to be very different because they're now going to be in charge. They can't just talk down whatever the other guy is doing. It's going to be them. So let's talk about what they are likely to do with this majority, admittedly much narrower uh, than they wanted. Uh, but people do say it's a kind of winner-takes-all system with the House. If you do have the majority, you get to run the show. It's quite a disciplined operation uh, in terms of committees and so on. What are they likely to use this stock of political capital they've accumulated? Uh, uh, what are they going to do with it? You're absolutely right that once you have the majority, when you're the speaker and you have the gavel, there's a way much more that you can do. And because their margins are so narrow and because Republicans have such a difference of opinion within their own ranks, a lot of Republicans saying we really have to hone in on investigations. And that is something, of course, that is just a power that comes with the majority. Top of that list, what many Republicans have been wanting to do for a long time now is investigate President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, and his business dealings while Biden was vice president. Um, they also want to go after a lot of immigration reform. And, and the way that they're going to go about that is by targeting the current Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, who Kevin McCarthy said, you know, you should resign. If Secretary Mayorkas does not resign, House Republicans will investigate every order, every action. And if you don't, we're going to investigate and our investigations may lead to an impeachment inquiry. That's the furthest Republicans have gone. Of course, the more Trump wing of the Republican Party wants to impeach Biden immediately. I just introduced articles of impeachment on President Joe Biden. Joe Biden is selling our strategic petroleum reserves. This should never happen. But, you know, the investigations won't just stop there. A lot on COVID, the COVID origins, the Biden administration's decisions during the pandemic. A lot of Republicans want to investigate January 6th, but in a very different way that we've seen the committee do over the last year, just going after uh, people who have targeted Trump um, is something that I think a number of Republicans definitely want to start looking into. I mean, I think some people hearing this will be astonished by this calculation that you're describing, because they will think, surely, given the elections didn't go so favourably for Republicans, the message the voters were sending was not, 
hey guys, why don't you start investigating Hunter Biden? Surely it was, we want you to focus on those bread and butter domestic issues of expensive gas prices, rising inflation, wages, and so on. What, what, how is it that Republicans are thinking, you know, that their read of what the electorate want is to be uh, investigating their political rivals for the next two years, rather than concentrating on the lives of the people who elected them? Yeah, no, you make a very good point about what the takeaway should be. You know, the Republican base, those who will turn out and vote Republican regardless of who's the top of the ticket, I'm sure they're pretty excited about these investigations and holding the Biden administration accountable. But you do have a number of moderate Republicans who are working and and wanting to actually address a number of the policy issues that voters have said they want to see Congress do. I think a takeaway from this election is a rejection of the extremes. You did see a number of voters say, hey, please get to work, please pass something. And in you know, if, if you want to be optimistic, these pretty narrow margins can allow that to happen. You've heard it from some moderate Republicans who say, I'm reaching out to some Democratic colleagues and I know I'm trying to make relationships with Democrats across the aisle because, you know, as much as Republicans may want to pass their perfect vision of, I don't know, immigration reform or budget cuts. Every Congress, every who, regardless of who's in the majority, you have to pass government funding bills. If not, the government will shut down. We've seen that happen before. Um, they are going to have to deal with the debt ceiling, which if you don't meet that, I, there's not even a word for how bad that's going to be for the American economy and likely affect economies worldwide. So, so we, we should just explain that. That is, in a way, the government does need to uh, borrow money. And to do that, it has to allow itself legally to raise the amount of debt it's allowed to have. If it doesn't, the government runs out of money and you can, in effect, and we've seen it many times in recent decades, shut down the government. Exactly. And those are things that Republicans in the majority, just Congress generally, has to get done. And Republicans have already said that because the majorities are so narrow, they will have to work with Democrats on these bigger must-pass um, pieces of legislation. If not, they don't They don't want to get blamed, as we've seen when they last had the majority, as the party that doesn't get things done. But that majority, how narrow it is, is really going to prevent them from doing a lot of things that they were initially hoping they could show the American public, look, this is what we stand for. This is what we can actually do. It's a fascinating picture you paint because in a way they haven't got the numbers to agree on those more controversial policy areas. And it's almost as if investigating the, the you know, their opponents is the one thing they can muster the numbers to do. Um, but within that context, then uh, what people have said about having a small majority and, you know, I'm sitting here in Britain, we've seen this in, in Parliament often. It means you have kind of veto power given to the fringes, to even tiny groups of members. Uh, Members, even what you know, lone individuals can be the difference between getting stuff done or not. And they then hold that kind of leverage against the leadership. They hold a veto power. And people have been saying that, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the very fringe candidate, very MAGA uh, congresswoman from Georgia, the Freedom Caucus, these people are going to be in effect running the show. Nothing will happen unless they agree with it. Absolutely. And, you know, I before the election, I had talked to a number of those Freedom Caucus members, and even they would say, you know, we, we can't say how much influence we will have until the election happens, because, again, Republicans were expecting 30 seats 
just a way bigger majority. And if that were the case, those voices would have totally been canceled out. They wouldn't have needed their votes. But now that it's five, I mean, the, the first test will really be Kevin McCarthy's vote for speaker. That happens on January 3rd. It's a floor vote, and he must get 218 votes to be officially named the Speaker of the House. Right now, there are five Republicans from the Freedom Caucus who have said, I'm not supporting him. He can come back and try to give me whatever he wants, but I'm a no. That's going to be the first challenge where we're going to see how just that narrow majority is going to affect what Kevin McCarthy wants to do as Speaker, if he can even be Speaker. Yeah, we, I want to come on to the specifics of Kevin McCarthy and his fascinating predicament uh, in a moment or two. But before we just get to that, in terms of substance, some of the noises that made waves internationally coming out of Republicans when they were you know, really believing they were on course to win big was a change in policy, for example, on Ukraine. Uh, that you know There was Marjorie Taylor Greene, to mention her again, saying not one cent more once we're in charge. Are there big picture policy changes that even with the constraints of this tiny wafer-thin majority uh, could be coming in a Republican-led House? That's the difficult question because, you know, when I've been talking to Republicans, they are feeling really, really pessimistic about being able to do anything that they had already thought they could do with a bigger majority. Ukraine funding is one of those issues that there have been a growing number of Republicans, especially in the House, who don't want to give any more funding, like you mentioned. They were hoping that that could have been canceled out with a bigger majority. That's the kind of vote where you're going to need Democrats to support and pass those kinds of bills. So, you know, when you have such a narrow majority and you want to pass things through with only your party's votes, it can't be the most extreme. You have to find compromise. The Freedom Caucus has already shown that, that they, they don't like to do that. So it really is going to be difficult to even predict what priorities, what policy issues they may try to push through. And and just because you mentioned the Freedom Caucus, just give a sense of the overall balance of forces within this Republican group. Uh, they're obviously on one wing, right on the other end of the spectrum, a Republican who voted to impeach Donald Trump has won re-election in California. I think that makes him only the second of the 10 impeachers, these sort of anti-Trumpers, uh, to actually be still in the Congress on the Republican side. I mean, as you would break it down, what is the makeup in terms of those who are, if you like, mini-Trumps, as a previous guest on this podcast once called them, set against the never-Trumpers like our friend re-elected in California? What is the balance of forces as you see it? Who's strong? What, what kind of numbers do they have? Yeah, it's interesting because if you think about it, the Freedom Caucus is actually small in numbers. There are about 25 to 30 members, um, which, again, if you have five votes that you can only lose, that's pretty significant. But the rest of the conference itself is conservative, but they want to get things done. So there is definitely a governing majority, people who actually want to pass legislation, that is probably the most sizable group. There's like a Republican study committee. I think it's a, somewhere around 100 members who you would just consider your, your, your standard Republican conservative. And then you have a more moderate group of 80 members. So it's bigger than the Freedom Caucus. But these are also pragmatic, um, more moderate, willing to go across the aisle and work with Democrats. Um, they're called the Main Street Group. And now that the majority is so thin... 
they want to flex their muscle. They really do want to help leadership get things done because they also know their own reputation is on the line. They want to govern. And that's the group where you see these members representing swing districts who voted to impeach Trump because that's something that their constituency wanted. It'll be interesting to see in this term just how much that group may gain more relevance as they try and get things done. Now, obviously, people are fascinated by the politics of this in itself, but also for the climate, the conditions it creates for the next presidential election in 2024. There were some Democrats, um, certainly when I was in Washington a couple of weeks back, saying, you know what, it may not be so bad to lose the House. Obviously, you'd always rather win, but it may not be so bad because this way, when we run again in 2024, we won't be as wholly the party of incumbency. We won't be the establishment, if you like. Instead, Republicans will be held to account for what they do in the House, and it could be useful for Joe Biden and for the Democrats as something to run against, as a kind of foil, especially if um, you know they they do things that the American public will consider extreme. What what's your view of that, and whether what impact a Republican-led House has on the 2024 race, and whether you two are encountering Democrats who who are slightly licking their lips here, thinking this could work for us. Oh, absolutely. I have heard that from many Democrats. Um, Even before the House majority was officially called last week, I was texting with a congresswoman from Pennsylvania, and and she was like, you know what, I hope we lose the majority, because it's going to be really fun to watch Republicans not get things done. And and they Democrats very much see this as an opportunity to point fingers and say, see, look, we told you they wouldn't get things done. We were able to pass legislation and in a bipartisan fashion, Biden was able to sign a number of bills into law. So maybe you should give us back the majority in 2024. Um, that would be great because then we can get things done. Like we're, yeah. Democrats are definitely reveling in the ability to say that. And Trump running, I mean, that was a day where you saw a lot of House Republicans not wanting to talk about it because they know, even if they might not say so publicly, they know that Trump costs them this midterm election. And of course, the opposite is true on the Democratic side. They were more than happy to see Trump announced because they very much see what unites the Democratic base to turn out and vote is the rejection of Trump. Yeah. No, plenty of people think it was sort of best of both worlds because they kept the Senate so they can get judicial appointments through. That's crucial. But meanwhile, you get this sort of blame game already in motion with Republican control of the House. Let's talk about the people uh, at the top here. Uh, We mentioned Kevin McCarthy. He's obviously now in a very weak position, uh, given the thinness of the majority he can wield, Uh, even as we take on board what you said about once you hold the gavel, you hold it. And therefore, that gives him a lot of muscle. But there are people who say, even besides the political position, he is a weak figure, even a weak man. And they draw attention to his reaction on January the 6th, 2021, when he was you know, calling up Donald Trump saying, call off the dogs, this is terrible. And then, you know, once he saw the way the wind was blowing, suddenly letting Trump off the hook. What what do you think about Kevin McCarthy? How robust a figure is he to cope with this new position he finds himself in? Yeah, you know, McCarthy has a reputation of being a dealmaker. And a dealmaker, not in the, you know, we're going to come forth, come together and make compromise in a bipartisan fashion and pass these big bills. Not that way. A dealmaker in the sense that 
he works with leverage with his own members. And members like him for that reason because they know that they can go up to him and say, I'm not going to vote for you or I'm not going to vote for this piece of legislation until I get this. And McCarthy's willing to hear them out. And most of the time, and this is something that we will likely continue to see until January 3rd, what deals, what does he give these members in order to get what he wants? He has always been ambitious and always wanting to be Speaker of the House. He only came in as a member of Congress in 2007, so has relatively had a short career that most of it, he's actually been in Republican leadership. So this really is his chance. And interestingly enough, because the margins are so thin for the majority, there aren't that many other Republicans who necessarily want to lead the conference right now. McCarthy is so eager to be speaker that a lot of Republicans who are kind of waiting in the wings, you know, the number twos, threes, fours of leadership, they're saying, let him have it. But we will see if he'll actually end up being speaker. So it's still up for grabs. But as you say, people aren't exactly beating down the door to do it because they think in some ways it is a bit of a hospital pass to lead the Republicans in this particular very narrow Congress. So let's talk about the Democrat side of things. And first, we have to do a word about the woman who is outgoing, Nancy Pelosi. When I came to the Congress in 1987, there were 12 Democratic women. Now they're over 90, and we want more. <laughs> you know, a historic figure, the most powerful woman uh, in American political history, I think, by quite some distance, but also praised as a master tactician. Uh, what exactly are Democrats losing with the retirement of Nancy Pelosi? Democrats will admit that they're losing a lot. Um, Pelosi has been atop of Democratic leadership for almost 20 years. And she is someone who historians have said is probably the most effective speaker in U.S. history. And the reason why is that she knows her people so well that she is able to know where the votes are at any point in time and make sure that, okay, I know that four or five people are against this bill right now as it stands. Let me bring them to the negotiating table. And the negotiations, as we've seen this last term, they can go on for hours. But at the end of the day, those people leave that meeting and they're going to vote in favor of whatever she puts on the floor. She never puts a vote on the floor unless she knows that she has enough of a majority to pass it. And I think had Democrats won the majority again, and it would have been very narrow, you would have seen a lot of House Democrats say, okay, we need her to stay because she is literally the only person who is capable of making sure that the votes are there, that her members stay in line and can get big pieces of legislation done. First rule of politics, know how to count. And she certainly knew how to count. Uh, people thinking she's indispensable, but nobody ever is or can be in politics. So who is in the running to replace her? So the person that is running to replace her is Congressman Hakeem Jeffries of New York. Steve Scalise, look forward to working uh, whenever and wherever possible. However, Jake, with the entire House Republican Conference and the leadership team, to find common ground to get things done for everyday Americans to make progress. Uh, but of course, we. Will he's fairly young. He's in his 50s. He came up as a lawyer, but served in the New York State Assembly for several years and has been representing his hometown of Brooklyn for the past decade. And 
Ever since he got to Capitol Hill, he was always seen as a rising star. You know, something interesting about Pelosi is that she has been able to help this new generation by giving people tasks and kind of testing them. And one of them was for him. He was an impeachment manager during one of the two impeachments against Donald Trump. And no one is running against him. And Pelosi has given her blessing as he seeks that top spot as well as Congresswoman Catherine Clark, who is likely to be the number two Democrat in line, the second woman, of course, to reach such a position if she is elected at the end of this month. And there's also Congressman Pete Aguilar, who will be the number three Democrat, a Hispanic man, much younger, he's in his 40s, and that is likely to make up this new generation of leadership. It's always worth remembering that only in American politics is somebody in their 50s or even 40s thought of as young, but that is the nature of American politics with an 80-year-old president and a 76-year-old uh, arch-rival. So this passing of the torch that's gone on, and it, it, I suppose all of it another tribute to Nancy Pelosi because she has managed this succession strategy and and what, is, is sort of hiring in her own image? Is she going for people who bring kind of Pelosi style skills to the job? You know, it's interesting. Uh, a big reason why a lot of House Democrats were ready for the older generation, as they like to say, the old guard to move on, was because they were actually getting kind of tired of that very strong grip that Pelosi has as the top leader. Uh, what they like about this trio is that they can rely on each other. They all have different strengths and strengths within the ideological factions of the caucus itself. So they actually don't want to necessarily have a speaker that has all the power, all the influence, all the say. They do want to see this leadership team. And and Pelosi has said she's, you know, she's not necessarily, even though she's staying in the House to serve next term, she told a couple of reporters after she made her announcement, you know, it was kind of funny the way she said it. She said, I'm not trying to be the mother in the kitchen saying, oh, you know, my son likes his his dinner this way, actually. Oh, you're not doing you're not doing it right. My son likes it this way. She is very cognizant that she has a different way of governing, that she doesn't want to be kind of the shadow over this new group. And a lot of members, while they're glad that she's staying and she could be a resource for them, they also want to make sure that this new leadership team comes to the membership and, you know, negotiates with them first, talks to them first before making any kind of unilateral decision. Well, all eyes, I think, uh, will be on the House uh, in the coming weeks and months. Suddenly it is going to be a cockpit, maybe even a bear pit of American politics because every vote is going to be dramatic and contested and we will be bringing all of that news as it unfolds. But for now, Mariana Sotomayor of The Washington Post, thanks so much for joining us on Politics Weekly America this week. Thanks so much for having me. And that is all from me for this week. On Wednesday's episode of Today in Focus, my colleague Chris McGreal spoke to Noshin Iqbal about the rise of Ron DeSantis from Trump protégé to potential main contender for the Republican presidential nomination for 2024. So search for that wherever you get your podcasts. 
Now, next week, we'll be marking the 10th anniversary of the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School with a special episode from Newtown, Connecticut, reporting from there my colleague, Joni Grieve. For this week, the producer was Danielle Stevens with help from Harim Khan and the executive producer was Maz Ebtahaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.